Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. While the Trump administration prepares the presidential order to declare the opioid epidemic a national emergency, governors in six states have already declared emergencies to deal with opioids. Those states range from Alaska and Arizona in the west to Florida, Virginia, Maryland, and Massachusetts in the east. Here today to talk about the opioid epidemic in his state and what declaring a state of emergency has meant to those struggling with opioid use disorder is Dr. Jay Butler, the Chief Medical Officer and Director of the Division of Public Health at the Alaska Department of Health and Human Services and Chairman of the Alaska Opioid Policy Task Force. So, Doctor, welcome. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Let's start off by, if we could ask you to share with us the impact of the opioid epidemic in Alaska. I think Alaska is a great example of the extent of the opioid crisis in North America because it shows that there's no part of our country that hasn't been touched by this crisis. While our rates are not as uh, high as what has been seen in parts of New England and in Appalachia, uh, they're still disturbingly high. And we've uh, seen the increases starting with uh, prescription drug overdose deaths and more recently uh, deaths and other complications related to use of heroin and some of the illicitly manufactured fentanyls. I think Alaska really highlights the fact that even in you get out to remote villages, uh, there is still a challenge with opioid abuse. Uh, we had one cluster of overdoses, for instance, in a, a village that you can only get to after an hour-long jet ride and then several stops on a, a two-engine plane. And uh, unfortunately, that cluster of overdoses that all occurred in one day even resulted in a death. And those overdoses were related to what was thought to be heroin, but actually contained uh, a high concentration of illicitly manufactured fentanyl. Wow. With the remoteness, that's a completely different dynamic from what we're dealing with here in our state, the state of Ohio. Well, I'm sometimes asked what's unique about the opioid crisis in Alaska. And there certainly are unique aspects as it is related to 
the remoteness of some of our areas. But I, I think the, the most impressive thing to me is the lack of uniqueness, that we're struggling with some of the same issues that people in the lower 48, as, as well as people throughout much of Canada, are. So in February, Alaska Governor Bill Walker declared the opioid crisis a public health disaster in Alaska. Can you tell us what led up to the governor making that decision and what the process entails? Well, Governor Walker has uh, had a lot of interest in the opioid crisis. Uh, During particularly his second year as governor, he uh, was observing some of the uh, health impact of opioid abuse in our communities and uh, was talking with Alaskans and uh, really became aware that it was an issue that couldn't be ignored and one that would require response. Uh, In talking with the governor and providing uh, briefings, he uh, was very open to uh, making sure that he was aware of the situation and that we were engaging across the various departments of state government and working together. So at the same time that's happening, we had uh, two drivers that uh, really brought uh, the disaster declaration to a head. Uh, One was our need to move ahead with uh, a particular uh, project we called uh, Alaska Project HOPE, Uh, HOPE standing for harm reduction, overdose prevention, and education. And a key part of this program was distribution of naloxone uh, as a part of a rescue kit. And these rescue kits uh, included uh, the prepackaged naloxone nasal spray, some gloves, a uh, airway barrier, as well as instructions on how to administer the drug and, and what to do. Most importantly, uh, calling nine one one, and also if there wasn't a response, uh, giving a second dose and, and commencing CPR if the, the responder knew how to uh, administer uh, CPR. Our initial plan for the Project Hope was working with tribal organizations and law enforcement agencies, but it became apparent that we really needed a much uh, broader outreach. And while these other organizations have the medical direction to be able to provide the prescriptive authority, we realized that we really needed a statewide standing order. And that authority didn't currently exist in statute. So the disaster declaration provided the opportunity for the governor to do that under an administrative order so that we could launch the program pending uh, passage of in the state legislature to be able to provide that authority. The other driver was the, uh, the need to improve collaboration and coordination. And so we went forward with a unified command structure. And the, our discussions were, you know, we, we, we had just uh, finished a report from the Alaska Opioid Policy Task Force. Uh, we had some standing groups, such as the Alaska Board on Alcohol and Drug Abuse. And so we're getting input from a lot of groups. But what we really needed to do was take action. Uh, so uh, the governor was very open to uh, creating an incident command structure, uh, just as we would do if we were responding to a wildfire or a tsunami. Uh, and this brought together uh, personnel from a number of different agencies, not only from within the Department of Health and Social Services, but other parts of state government. As, um, we discussed it, we realized that when there's a wildfire, we don't have working groups discuss the nature of fire. We don't just get the hoses out and measure how long they are. 
we get personnel that are available to put the wet stuff on the red stuff and address the problem. And that there were specific things, steps we could be taking, things we could be doing to address the opioid crisis. So our structure within the Unified Command is uh, anyone, any of the listeners who's, who have been involved with Infinite Command Structure be uh, very familiar. Uh, we have a group in charge of operations, a group in charge of planning, a uh, group in charge of logistics, and uh, a finances group, a joint information center, and a multi-agency coordinating group, which is primarily the cabinet members in charge of nine different departments that uh, are involved in the response. And we certainly found that as we started with departments of health and social services, law, public safety, which is our uh, state troopers, corrections, commerce, where uh, the administration of the, the health care boards are, education, that was even more opportunities. So transportation, military and veterans affairs, and even fishing game are all part of this process now. So let me go back for just a second. Why is the standing order so important to, for this? The, you didn't have an opportunity to issue, but now you did? Yes. Uh, so we re- recognize that to get the statutory authority, it might take weeks, if not months, to be able to uh, get that through the legislature. Uh, but ultimately, uh, we did get a, a bill through uh, shortly after the uh, 30 days of the the standing disaster declaration had expired. So the the disaster declaration achieved the short-term goal of being able to launch the naloxone program and the longer-range goal of creating the structure for the interagency response. So you did the, the emergency order in February, and did it just last for 30 days, the order? It actually, the administrative order lasts longer, but the disaster declaration, any disaster declaration in the state of Alaska is defined by statute as only 30 days. And we, we actually have in our statute a, a statement that uh, is that emergencies rarely exist and should rarely be declared. So this was really a, a fairly unusual measure uh, in our state. And then as we looked at the need to renew the disaster declaration, we uh, were close to getting the statute passed, and we recognized that we had the incident command structure up and going, so we did not request an extension of the disaster declaration. And people are are quite aware that the response is continuing even uh, as we speak today. Okay. So in that first 30 days, what you accomplished is you got the statute passed for the standing order so that you could uh, freely uh, um, prescribe naloxone statewide, and you got your incident command structure in place with all of the people. Right. And incident, one of the beauties of incident command structure is it's scalable to the degree of response that's needed. And uh, so far, it, it continues to actually be drawing people in. We We have not found this to be a crisis that is going to uh, just be gone in a few months. We knew that uh, coming in, but we we identify additional needs and bring additional people on board as needed. And it's important to note that, you know, this response is being done without creating uh, new positions. Uh, Like many states, uh, particularly those that are petroleum states, we're in a bit of a, a fiscal crisis. So we really had to determine the best way to scale up a, a full-scale response without 
uh, needing uh, a big influx of additional state resources. So who fills those roles then? Well, it is staff in multiple departments. Uh, we lean very heavily on the Department of Health and Social Services and the uh, Division of Public Health. But we also have uh, a great partnership with our uh, Department of Military and Veterans Affairs. Uh, so we have uh, three active duty National Guardsmen involved in uh, drug prevention that are uh, detailed to us. Uh, we have uh, people who uh, are in all the, the various departments that uh, are doing this uh, basically as uh, other duties as assigned and, and setting aside the time to do that. And one of the, the uh, advantages of uh, a declaration of moving into the incident command structure, which uh, does have more longevity under the administrative order, is it uh, creates the, the permission within the personnel system for people to be able to uh, commit time to this. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that works, the permission to spend time on this? State, these are state employees then, is that it? Yes, uh, the majority of people involved are state employees. Uh, we do have uh, a few federal assignees who uh, are working on the, the project as well. Uh, and I, as I already mentioned, we have uh, even three National Guards personnel as well. Okay. So other than enabling you to very quickly issue that standing order and get that statute passed, as well as get the permission for people to spend the extra hours and participate in the command structure that uh, you now have set up, what else has declaring a state public emergency enabled you to do that you couldn't have otherwise done? Well, I think it's probably a good time to discuss just very broadly what are the purposes of declaring any kind of uh, state of emergency or disaster declaration, because the need to do this is going to differ from state to state, and even nationally, it uh, may depend on the circumstances. So I categorize the, the reasons as the, the six Ps, so personnel, pay, procedures, procurement, policy, and priority. So personnel, we've just been talking about uh, deployment of personnel, having intra-agency reassignment or cross-agency embedding, where uh, personnel from one agency might actually be working uh, for a period of time within another agency. Uh, pay, what I'm really talking about is uh, funding. Maybe I should call it puff funding. But this is, uh, you know, it could be access to emergency funds or uh even appropriation of additional funds. Uh, that was not an option uh, for us, but that's uh, one of the issues that states need to consider as they review the uh, possible advantages of a, of a, uh, of a declaration. Uh, three, procedures, uh, streamlining of bureaucratic functions, and uh, one of those would actually be the fourth B is procurement. Uh, being able to fast-track and use non-traditional methods to uh, acquire goods and services. The fifth P is policy, uh, which certainly was one of the uh, functions of our declaration uh, or one of the outcomes, and that's the need for new laws or regulations to support the longer-term response and recovery from whatever the disaster might be. And the final P is uh, a priority. It's a uh, statement of importance, uh, you know, 
could be considered a, a rhetorical tool. I would stress that this alone probably is not a good reason to declare any kind of emergency or declaration, but it is uh, part of how the, the crisis at hand uh, gets uh, discussed more often. One of the things that is different about the opioid crisis than other disasters is that it is much less visible. Uh, you know, if there's a, a major earthquake, everyone feels it. Uh, if there's a hurricane, people see the weather change. Whereas the opioid crisis, I think the best analogy to a, a natural disaster is uh, a tsunami. Uh, we suddenly realized that we were in something deep, and we didn't actually feel the seismic shift that began 20 years ago in how providers prescribe opioid pain relievers. And then subsequent waves of tsunami have come in with uh, the influx of heroin as, as well as uh, the illicitly manufactured fentanyls. So, Doctor, you put forth a really a compelling argument on why a state would want to declare a state's emergency for the opioid epidemic. Why wouldn't they if they're really suffering from this terrible scourge of our nation? Well, that's, that's a great question, Greg. And I think the, the dialogue that then needs to occur is uh, what are the needs? What do we hope to achieve through this declaration? And is there another way to achieve it? And if the answer to the question is, yeah, there's other ways we can do this and we can do it in a way that is timely and will meet the needs of people who are suffering from addiction, uh, as well as the needs of their, their families and our communities, uh, then let's just do it. We don't need a, de a declaration. Uh, so each state that has declared uh, some type of emergency has had different reasons. Uh, in Arizona, there were uh, issues related to being able to make overdose a reportable condition and to be able to detail personnel for data management purposes. Uh, so very different than the immediate need that we, we had in Alaska, although we have used the ongoing incident command structure to address uh, a better way to collect and organize data in a more timely fashion. Very good. Um, I want to move along to other programs that uh, you've put to work in your state to fight the opioid epidemic that uh, you've found particularly effective that you'd like to share with our audience? Sure. So uh, we're only about six months uh, into the incident command structure uh, response. And because it is a complex crisis, the, uh, the response uh, also can be fairly complex. And, and on, on day one, we said, uh, this isn't really a sprint. sprint. We're running a, a marathon here. So uh, I'd say we're about 10K in so far, and we still have much to do. But so far, uh, what we've been able to uh, achieve, uh, I mentioned data earlier. Uh, that has been an opportunity to be more timely. Uh, you know, I, I, I think of disaster response in terms of situational awareness, and I think many of us remember the the visions of Hurricane Katrina uh, with some government officials saying everything's under control. At the same time, we're seeing pictures of, of flooded streets. You know, that was a lack of uh, awareness and situational awareness. We have had uh, historically fairly slow turnaround on the type of data we need to track the opioid crisis. And 
Uh, data dashboards can be very useful, but if they're showing data from two years ago, it's very hard to age our response and uh, change policy. We wouldn't drive our cars based on what the, the readings were two days ago, and similarly, we can't drive uh, a public health program that way either. So how did you fix uh, that? We've, uh, we are working uh, across agencies to be able to uh, work with preliminary data if needed. Uh, for instance, uh, in the past, death certificate data oftentimes had to go through a review and a, a finalization, working with the Center for Health Statistics. Uh, we've taken that uh, a step further in terms of being able to uh, look at what our preliminary data uh, reflects. We find that the, the degree of, of error is small enough that we can live with it, uh, that it's, uh, you know, it, we may end up adding a few cases or even subtracting a few cases when the final data is in, but it gives us a really good idea of uh, where we stand relative to last year or the year before. The other thing that I think is really critical for the data is being able to look for uh, clusters of events. And we have used some of the infrastructure that was created uh, for what's called uh, sentinel surveillance or syndromic surveillance, looking at uh, the, the ER data, uh, EMS runs. And in April and May, we saw a spike in the number of runs that were related to opioid overdose. And in checking with the state medical examiner's office, uh, we were beginning to see an uptick in the, the number of deaths. We worked with law enforcement. Uh, we fast-tracked some of the toxicology testing and realized that much of what we were seeing was uh, related to fentanyl. And so our working hypothesis, since these overdoses were all in one city, was that uh, there was a batch of heroin that had very high concentrations of fentanyl. So we moved fairly quickly and worked with the media to get the, the message out that there was uh, some heroin on the street that we uh, had reason to believe was uh, uniquely dangerous and to get the message out there that using heroin is like a game of Russian roulette. But right now, there are more bullets in the chamber and this is a great time to, uh, if you are considering treatment and entering into recovery, it may never have been uh, more important, uh, providing the guidance uh, to EMS that if you're not getting a response to naloxone and uh, you, there's a, a high likelihood of opioid overdose, additional doses may be needed to be able to, to treat uh, fentanyl. Um, this cluster lasted altogether about two weeks. Uh, unfortunately, uh, roughly uh, about 10 people uh, died, but we did not see further cases occurring uh, outside of, uh, of the city of Anchorage. And I think our, our measures may have helped uh, reduce the spread of that batch out to more remote areas. Again, I can't say for sure, but uh, we were able to get word out on the street very quickly. And particularly in a small state like ours, even a, a fairly small cluster uh, or significant clustering in time could be missed if we didn't have that uh, very proactive outreach into data. So, Dr. Butler, what advice would you give to other states uh, that uh, that 
perhaps are considering uh, declaring the opioid epidemic a state emergency. What advice would you give to them from your experience in Alaska? Well, I think you have to look at what are what are your goals? What do you want to achieve? And keep in mind that the declaration is a tool. It's not an end in itself. And if it's a tool that will help you get to where you need to be, I think it's a very rational way to go. Many people uh, I know are sort of scratching their heads that, uh, well, this is almost like if we think of addictions as a as chronic health conditions, uh, this doesn't fit the usual definition of uh, a disaster. But I think if we sort of ignore that time frame and look at the the remarkable increase in the rate of death due to opioid overdose, we can say that we're dealing with uh, an epidemic just as we uh, might be uh, if it were a, a flu pandemic. And, you know, that's another example of where the declaration of a public health emergency is uh, fairly common. Well, Doctor, I'd really like to uh, thank you for your time today. It's uh, you, the insight that you've been that you've provided us has been invaluable. So what final thoughts would you share with our listeners, uh, Dr. Butler, about the opioid epidemic and what you've witnessed? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to realize uh, if you have listeners in in state government, as well as everybody, as we look at uh, the state level, there's only so much that can be done at the state level, and there's only so much that can be done by government. The real action takes place at the community level, often led by community coalitions of citizens, including medical and behavioral health providers, elected officials, local law enforcement, the faith community, family members of those struggling with addiction, and most importantly, people in recovery. Um, This final group is is really the the people who give us reason for hope. Uh, For healthcare providers, I think it's important to recognize that uh, we oftentimes don't see the successes and the people coming out on the other side of addiction and living in prolonged recovery. We generally see the failures and the complications. My my clinical background is uh, infectious diseases. So for years, I've taken care of complications of self-injection drug use, including HIV and hepatitis C. And it was those complications I usually saw. And over the past couple of years, thanks to uh, people in Alaska who are living in recovery, I now understand there's millions of Americans who are living in recovery. And they're just outside, they've been just outside of my field of view and sometimes sitting right in front of me. But because we as providers have not historically recognized addiction as a health condition that requires compassionate and science-based management, neither we nor our patients have had some of the critical conversations that need to occur. And I guess the final comment I'd make uh, as we talk about the opioid crisis is that we also have to take uh, a larger view that's uh, not just molecule-specific, but when we, particularly when we start talking about primary prevention and access to treatment, that we need to recognize that uh, there are many types of misuse of substances, and we have to take a comprehensive approach that addresses uh, whatever the type of addiction is, whether it be opioids, benzodiazepines, cocaine, methamphetamine, or alcohol. Well, once again, Doctor, I want to thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, and thank you for the work you're doing.
Okay. We've been visiting today with Dr. Jay Butler, the Chief Medical Officer and Director of the Division of Public Health at the Alaska Department of Health and Human Services. Jay is also the Chairman of the Alaska Opioid Policy Task Force. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.